I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. If you love listening to this show as much as I love hosting it, I think you'll really like the Medal of Honor podcast produced in partnership with the Medal of Honor Museum. Each episode talks about a genuine American hero and the actions that led to their receiving our nation's highest award for valor. They're just a few minutes each, so if you're looking for a show to fill time between these Warriors episodes, I think you'll love the Medal of Honor podcast. Search for the Medal of Honor podcast wherever you get your shows. Thanks. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Colonel Douglas C. Dillard served in the Army as a parachute regiment sergeant during World War II and fought in the Battle of the Bulge. He also served in Korea and Vietnam. Dillard retired with numerous decorations, including the Distinguished Flying Cross and Legion of Merit, and was inducted into the Military Intelligence Hall of Fame. I am Douglas C. Dillard. My military career consisted of an enlistment on the 30 July 1942 in Atlanta, Georgia. I immediately volunteered to go into the paratroops. They had a, a big poster that said, Pounce like a falcon onto the prey. It caught the imagination of all the teenagers, I'm sure. And I went immediately into basic training in the parachute school. Our group was assembled at Fort Benning, approximately 500 graduates of the parachute school. And we shipped out to Hampton Roads, Virginia, and sailed to Panama. And en route, Major Yurg, who was a young major, announced that the battalion would be formed and would be designated the 551st Parachute Infantry Battalion. And we were to uh, train in Panama to jump on the island of Martinique and take it away from the Vichy French government because it was being used as a submarine refueling point. During that time, I was a private, then a private first class, and then a communication corporal in the mortar squad, and then the company communication sergeant, so that I was with the company commander uh, during our combat activities. I um, stayed in the Army at the end of the war. When the war ended, I was first sergeant of C Company, the 508 Parachute Regiment. I replaced Colonel uh, Sergeant Funk, who was a Medal of Honor winner during the Battle of the Bulge, and was reassigned to the 82nd Airborne Division as a uh, first sergeant in the 504 Regiment. And I transferred to the Georgia Military District to be the, the uh, administrator for a reserve airborne division that was being formed, and then took an examination for a warrant officer. I was appointed a warrant officer in the regular Army reassigned to the 82nd and Division Headquarters Company until the Korean War broke out. I was ordered on active duty, having been given a direct commission, and served for a short period of time in another regiment of uh, the 82nd, and then went to Korea. I was a first lieutenant there in a, a special operations unit and uh, continued in the uh, Army program 
uh, in the specialized intelligence collection field with the Army. And so uh, then I had consecutive tours as a captain and major and lieutenant colonel in Munich, Heidelberg, and, Ger- and Berlin. Attended the service schools, Army War College. Was promoted to colonel. Uh, commanded the 500th Military Intelligence Group in the Pacific. And came back and was the director of military intelligence branch for the Army. And at the time that I retired, I was the assistant deputy director for human intelligence for the Defense Intelligence Agency. And I retired in September 1977 as a colonel. We had arrived in Lyon, France, on trains that, that brought us up from southern France. And we were there for about two weeks, maybe 10 days. And I was prepared to get suited up and go to Paris the next day for a 24-hour pass. And at 3 o'clock in the morning, we were awakened by the charge quarters to go the, to the orderly room. And the company commander said the front has uh, been penetrated by German forces. Uh, no one really knows where the front is, and we must... Uh, get the troops up early, get a basic load of ammunition, our combat gear, and be ready to leave on transportation uh, by the break of dawn. And that occurred. We loaded on two-and-a-half-ton trucks. There's about 30 men to a truck, and the bed of the truck was covered with five-gallon uh, gasoline cans, or called jerry cans. So you really couldn't put your feet down on the bed. The legs were extended out over those cans. It was made it more uncomfortable. And we left uh, at, at daybreak and headed up to Belgium. And it was rather uneventful until the middle of the afternoon, and we arrived in a village uh, the, named Hutton. And we could hear small arms fire and artillery going off in the truck stop. And the, one of the officers came back and said, there's SS attacking from the other side of the village, and we're not going to be able to go through. We'll have to turn around. So we're in those narrow roads, and uh, the two-and-a-half-ton trucks each had a trailer, and it was very difficult, but the drivers were able to get the vehicles turned around. And we took a different route into Belgium. We drove all night. And in the wee hours of the next morning, pulled into an area around Ster, S-T-E-R, Belgium, and were immediately attached to the 30th Infantry Division. It was engaged in a very hot contest around Stumont, and they had hundreds of casualties already in the woods. Uh, we were bivouacked uh, in barns. And I remember that morning, a sergeant from the 30th Division came up with a trailer, and he had a 55-gallon drum in the trailer full of hot water and sea rations. And that was about the uh, the 20th of December, and I don't recall having a hot meal after that until I was evacuated on the night of 6 January to the hospital. And those were, it's a, you know, can of sea rations that had been heated in that uh, hot water. Uh, we remained in uh, direct support of the 30th Infantry Division for a couple of days, and then we were uh, told that we were going to uh, attack a village because the 30th Division had so many casualties that they had to get them out, and the weather was beginning to deteriorate. 
So on Christmas Eve, we uh, marched over to an area, and we were to uh, cross about 1,500 feet parallel to the front line and then make an, an abrupt right turn and attack the village. And as we uh, deployed and started to march in the attack position, we suddenly were stopped and turned around and told we're not going, we're going back to our bivouac. And the next day we learned that the 30th Division thought we were a regiment of 3,000 rather than a battalion of about 600. And uh, that was the reason that mission was canceled. And we returned to the uh, village of Rayer and dug in. And uh, I don't recall having got into any building or out of the, the uh, elements until, as I said, the 6th of January when I was evacuated. We're out in the elements the whole time. Well, strange as it may seem, there were uh, portions of Turkey and some other assorted uh, bits brought up and served in the chow line out in the field. And I remember some of the guys would take a turkey leg and stick it up in the tree and figure, well, it's, it's freezing weather, so it's not going to go bad, and I'll eat it tomorrow. And uh, everyone knew it was Christmas, but uh, there was really not much joy because by that time we'd already been out in the elements for over a week and uh, sleeping in a foxhole just you know, wrapped up with a blanket and a shelter half is you know, not very comfortable. And uh, it began to, to show on the, the morale of the troops. Uh, because the exposure, I think, was beginning to have a, an impact. So the joy of Christmas was there, but it was not really a celebration. It was a, a recognition more than anything. In the bivouac area, I used to misnomer. I should have said a slip trench rather than a foxhole because we dug in to just get below the surface of the ground, and you could stretch out and roll up in your in uh, the shelter half. We didn't have ponchos at that time, shelter halves in a blanket, and uh, that was just before the, the weather had gotten so cold that you could still dig a few inches in the ground. Uh, regarding uh, the foxholes, in some cases, uh, German positions were overtaken, and there were they really were foxholes that you could get in maybe two to three feet below the, the surface. Or they maybe they were uh, three feet deep and timber had been placed across the top of them in order to absorb the shell fragments. Because if you're just in a hole with no cover, you're still subject to uh, fragments from mortars and, uh, and artillery shells. In other cases, efforts were made to dig a hole, but by the time we started the attack on 30 January, that was practically impossible. What one uh, eventually did was scoop out a hole in the snow. And if you could find any uh, uh, timbers or any material of that sort, you'd try and, and prop it up so that it would absorb some of the, the sh fragments from any shells that were exploding in the trees. Of course, we've already mentioned that we came up from southern France, so we were still essentially lightly clothed. And most of us uh, either wore the jumpsuit or the uh, wool shirt and trousers. I fortunately had been able to barter with one of the tankers and was able to secure a tanker suit. 
And the tanker suit is a pair of, of uh, like coveralls with suspenders that are padded in a matching jacket that, that goes over it that has a wool padding inside it. It was, it was very warm, but confining as well. And I went to the motor pool one day and saw a stack of coats that had come in. And the, and the Army does not yet have them now, but they were called Mackinaws. And it was a three-quarter length coat with felt padding inside issued to drivers. So I beat the uh, supply sergeant out of one of those. So my uniform, uh, the weak part, of course, I was still wearing leather jump boots. I had the, the uh, tanker suit, the tanker jacket, and the mackin over that. And underneath all of it, a regular wool shirt and trousers and a uh, wool knit cap, steel helmet. And I do not remember having gloves and the other people uh, made do as best they could. Uh, some were still wearing those cotton jumpsuits. And uh, some had uh, managed to find some wool underwear. And the I think that what had happened, the major move uh, on the, the part of logistics was to open the, the port of Antwerp so that ships could come in. It would really shorten the, the logistic line from the English Channel into Belgium. And we were caught so short with that surprise uh, incursion into Belgium that I'm sure many units did not receive their winter gear uh, in time uh, to have it uh, as we moved up and were engaged on the front. So uh, during that period of time, we did not get any additional clothing. We should have had uh, uh, galoshers or overshoes. We should have had heavier wool clothes, uh, including the overcoats. And some of the men that did have overcoats, as has been noted in our history, uh, were ordered to uh, strip them off and leave them so that we could move fast. And historically, during that campaign, the firefighter one had a, a during that three-day period had a, a, a reputation of being fast moving. And in that way, quite often the flanks between the 505 on the left and the 517th on the right, there was not contact because we were moving fast. And eventually we paid for it with the uh, the frostbite cases. Clothing was a part of it, but uh, being uh, exposed to the elements that long, uh, as I indicated uh, earlier, from about the 20th of December up through the 7th of January, we had been out in the, the elements. And, uh, some people, I'm sure had been able to get in the building here or there as could uh, be found, but uh, I do not recall having been in any shelter uh, from that period of time until the night of the 6th when I was taken to the aid station. And uh, over a period of time, that cold just permeates the body, regardless of how warmly clothed you are, because uh, we're moving. We were in constant firefight for three and a half days. And the, the perspiration that you're working up, it cools, and it, it really dampens the inner clothing. And you can never overcome that. And if you get that chill on your back, you'll never be warm until you completely change clothes and get in a warm environment. And I think that was true for uh, practically all of our troopers. I think the main uh, influence in perking up morale is that we had, had uh, finally been told that we're going into the counterattack after we did the raid at Norfontaine. 
that after that raid on the 27th, the morale was sky high. You know, we could we could beat anybody. And we were just invincible and ready to take on the rest of the German army. And then there's a, a break. So whenever that happens, you know, the soldier gets uh, uh, a little loose, uh, loose and... Uh, and the inactivity is going to cause problems and drop of morale. And as soon as we were told that we we're going to go on the counterattack on the third, the morale began to zoom. At last, you know, we're going to get moving and uh, and get out of this uh, this cold environment because we felt that we were going to uh, be very successful in rolling the Germans back across the Somme, and we then would be able to get into a warm environment and got some hot food and a change of clothes. As it turned out, from that morning on the 3rd until the the night of the 7th, the battalion was never in the reserve. It was in a constant uh, firefight with very small breaks between engagements. And that really kept the adrenaline flowing. And that's, I think, the what kept the... Uh, the uh, the troopers going is that uh, they had a mission to uh, accomplish. Uh, they were very proud of their unit. They had very high morale, and uh, we could see the although it had uh, cost the unit a lot of casualties, we were accomplishing our mission. And there's a great sense of pride there. We're cross phase line two. And uh, you're ready to uh, go into Russian ball in spite of the casualties that we had. The 5th and 6th of January, we had moved into the area there uh, on the uh, hill opposing Russian ball. And Lieutenant Booth had assumed command of the company. And he came down to me. I was uh, trying to dig in. He said he was going to battalion, and I was the senior person left in the company, and that there were two officers coming down, and to just tell them to, to dig in until he got back and he would make their assignments. It was Lieutenant Kenley and a Lieutenant Dahl, and they were came out of the quartermaster. And the first thing they told me is we we're really eager to get a combat entry badge. And I said, well, after today, or rather after tomorrow, we'll see how eager you are. And uh, I I showed them an area near me to, to scoop out some snow and try and get uh, down in case we start getting some more shelling. And a patrol had just come back from down below, and they had identified the bridge, and uh, the the general conversation around the GIs there is that if that's a bridge, we can anticipate the Germans really resisting because uh, that's their exit their access route over the Somme. And the the feeling then as we talked to each other is that, you know, the, the next attack is going to be very, very deadly and probably more costly than what we've already been through since the 3rd of January. And that afternoon, Lieutenant Booth came back and he got the officers together and they began uh, planning the attack for the next day. Uh, Roy McCraw, the first sergeant of A Company, had just come back from the aid station. On the 3rd of January, when we uh, started in the second phase of the attack, we had crossed an open field, and as uh, we came out of the woods to attack across that open terrain, 
I could see a tank off to my left and, and hundreds of Germans digging in along the line that we were attacking. I thought to myself, God, this is absolutely crazy that we're going to be able to accomplish this. And uh, Captain Dalton, I was the communication sergeant, so I was with the company command group. Uh, he and I, the first sergeant, and the uh, liaison officer, and we started out across that field, and we got about in the middle of the field, and an 88 tank round exploded right in front of us. If we'd been 10 feet further, we'd probably all been killed. But it knocked everyone down. And as we shook our head and looked around, Captain Dalton was lying down there. So we pulled him back. We got a medic, and he was hauled off the field. And, you know, the rest is, is history where there was a, a movement to the right to flank the German positions. And uh, Sergeant McGraw had hurt his back because we had trouble under that fire. We're still getting machine gun fire and sporadic uh, tank rounds being fired directly in our position. So we were moving and dragging and moving, and he hurt his back. So that night, he went in the aid station. So when he came back that day on the, the night of the, the afternoon of the 6th, he went around and checked all the troops, and by that time, both of my feet were completely numb up to my knees. I, I couldn't even stand up. And uh, Roy said, you got to go to the aid station. You know, if you don't go, you're going to lose your feet. And the reason that happened to me the first day, as we started the attack, we came down the very steep hill from Basbadu, made a right turn, and started up a, a kind of a a meadow to get in our tight position. And there was a stream right in the middle of that uh, meadow. And as I started to jump across the stream, a mortar round landed right in front of me and I misjudged and fell right in the stream. So my clothes and my feet were completely wet and uh, we kept moving. I didn't have a chance to uh, change. And uh, the second night, one of the troopers did remove his boots, but he couldn't get them back on. I said, I'm not going to do that. And, uh, the night I was evacuated, I still had the same boots and, and, uh, and uh, wet socks that I had that first morning when we started. And that directly contributed to my case. Fortunately, I caught it in time, and after uh, four weeks in the hospital in England, uh, I was released for duty and went back and joined the 82nd. So I credit Roy McGraw really was saving my life that night because I would have been uh, right with Lieutenant Booth. And when he stepped around that curve and that MG-42 raked him from one one end to the other, I, I probably would have been caught up in it also. And I told the family that when we had Roy's funeral at Arlington Cemetery. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. 
Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, we have this superb podcast called We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by Billy Joel. It is the most original, fascinating, and random way to learn the story of the 20th century. Oh, pretty darned random. And we are joined by some pretty incredible guests. I only wrote stuff that I wanted to hear. If it turned out to be a hit, it was pure dumb luck. With me, Katie Puckrick. And me, Tom Fordyce. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Colonel Yerg, in, in my mind, was a, a unique uh, person. You have to remember, at that time I was 17 years old, and uh, everything he did, uh, in my mind, was the epitome of, a, of an outstanding leader. And he was a very good, uh, with, he, he was able to develop a relationship with the enlisted men that I've not seen with many other officers that I have served under in 35 years in the Army. There was a youthfulness, a vitality. There was an implied personal interest in you when he would talk to you. And that uh, there was a reciprocal feeling towards him by the enlisted men. I I know that in talking to some of the officers, uh, they had some difficulty, but uh, that is quite often the case where there's a rather dynamic commander who has the uh, following of the enlisted man and not necessarily a total uh, following of the officers because he reminded me a lot of General Westmoreland who was very demanding of his officers. There wasn't that he did not demand performance by the troops, but the troops performed through their officers and he didn't violate their the, you know, the chain of command in that respect. And during my career, I tried to emulate the perception that I carried with me of his leadership qualities and trying to be personable. Uh, when I dealt with the uh, individual on a one-on-one basis, that I wanted he or she to understand that I had their personal interests at heart. And I was not just going through the, the formality of making an appearance, uh, saying hello, saluting, and leaving. And that was a quality that I, I remember uh, with Colonel Yerg. And uh, I've talked to many of our veterans that they echo the same sentiment. He was uh, very much like General Gavin and Ridgeway in that regard. And the fact that he had placed himself in that very forward position in the tree line I think once again, uh, to recall the the battalion had been uh, in very difficult fighting for over three days, no sleep, uh, no warm meals, and again, improperly clothed. And I think he was there partly to demonstrate that, that, you know, I'm here with you and I'm supporting you. And also a vantage point to observe the battlefield because as... uh, uh, you look at the terrain from that vantage point, he could see uh, down that open terrain uh, into the uh, the Russian wall area so that he didn't have to totally rely on the, the rather defective communications that we had 
to have a more firsthand view of what was happening on the battlefield. And unfortunately, it led to his demise. However, one cannot say that had he been 200 yards further back in the woods, he would not still have been killed by one of those tree bursts. I believe from the, the, the standpoint of surviving that I was really amazed that uh, for the extended period of time that we had been out in that environment, and had been subjected uh, almost hourly to uh, showers of either mortar or shells, and being constantly in a small arms engagement that, in my case, that I was still standing. And I, uh, uh, once again, had that feeling that I've heard echoed time and time again, it's the guy on the right and left that's going to get hit, not me. And I think that we even today, in the back of my mind, I still have that feeling. So uh, uh, that was an impression as, you know, how can we still be here and, and be going, plodding through the snow and under these uh, conditions and seeing all the casualties, uh, some of the bodies stacked up and others that were wounded that we could not get them out. And that was the bad part of it. Yeah, I mean, uh, combat is combat. But when you see someone that has been disabled, and you don't know where to take them, and you have no means of evacuating them at that time, and with those elements, you know they're going to freeze to death. So that was the 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 downside of that, and I guess, one, again, in the back of one's mind, uh, you would think, well, that may be me next. And uh, I still have you know, very uh, fresh memories of that and some of the people that I served with for three years that were, you know, killed right in front of me. And, uh, I mean, that was quick and dirty as, uh, as we say, and they didn't suffer, but it was a, a tremendous loss that you never, you never get over. And I re- remember, and I believe that Greg cites it in the book, we caught a German uh, there in that field and we're all really infuriated. And I looked at the guy, and he had a, a breast full of ribbons on his tunic. And I don't know why I did it, and I still have them today, but I reached up and grabbed those ribbons and just ripped them off his uniform and stuck them in my pocket. And why I did it, I still don't know. But there was never any thought in my mind of shooting him. It's the furthest uh, thought because uh, we weren't raised that way, but uh, in, in a rage of passion, in a firefight, then uh, you would do it. And the day that uh, Lieutenant Durkee uh, led that bayonet attack, I was right with him. Although I had a submachine gun and the barrel was already frozen, I could not uh, even uh, move the uh, receiver. So I just slung it on my back and pulled out my forty-five and cleared it and, and went right along with Durkee. And I think that's the worst scene that I, I can uh, can recall. And I often refer people to the apocalypse about the Vietnam War. That's the scene I remember with the Dirk. He, he killed that first guy with a butt stroke from his rifle and just moved right up through that uh, uh, entrenchment. They were sort of dug in a row behind each other. And as they tried to get up out of the foxhole, he killed them. And they just fall back in, in that freezing weather. You could see the vapor forming from the breath coming, the warmth coming out of their body. And uh, that's still very clear in my mind.
I remember discussions of uh, the uh, anxiety to to get warmer clothing and the thought, well, Jeff, we can capture some of these Germans. We'll just take their greatcoats. I really didn't hear anyone talk about killing them to take their coats, but capturing because I remember with a group of prisoners that we had, and there was a comment, why don't we take their coats? We're freezing to death. And the officer said, no, we, we don't do that. And number one, Colonel Yerge said, you will not wear uh, German clothes or uh, equipment. Because in southern France, we had captured a lot of Germans, and they had knapsacks that had nice, it looked like a pony uh, skin as a cover for the back of the sack. And some of the guys started wearing them. Well, you can be mistaken for a German. So the order was out. You don't do that. So I think there was uh, was idle talk among some of the troops. But I think C Company is where that came up, that they were up around Foss or Bergival. And someone said, why don't we just go up there and capture a few of those guys and we'll take their clothes. But that was prohibited. When we heard about the massacre, it naturally uh, infuriated all the troopers. And the, the, the thought there was to, to get revenge. But uh, I think that that pretty much dissipated that thought because when you're out uh, on your own in the attack, you're thinking about yourself. And uh, following the, the orders of the officers or NCOs on how you handle prisoners, uh, I know that there's uh, allegations that one of our sergeants uh, executed a couple of Polish prisoners. I have no personal knowledge of that. I would say that there's always the the possibility of that happening because in southern France, a soldier in our battalion had just been informed that his brother had been killed. And he was guarding a German, uh, a, a wounded prisoner out in front of our lines. And about 50 minutes after the officer left, they heard a round fired from a rifle and, and the soldier came back in so he tried to escape so that may have been a legitimate not legitimate in the sense that that it was right to do it but it may have been a legitimate story that it actually occurred but uh, other than that uh, i have no personal knowledge of any of our troopers uh, ever having done that and i think that there was such pride in our unit that unless in the spur of the moment and in the, the, the passion of the moment and rage and having just seen someone kill next to you, that it may have been done. But I have no knowledge of it. There are, of course, many, many stories, and one can't be aware of all of them. Durkee stands out because he was always a very demanding and dynamic uh, platoon leader. And uh, the day that I was with him there and he ordered the charge, I mean, that was really a demonstration of leadership and, and courage that motivated everybody to get on with the, the task at hand. And he, he really should have been awarded at least a Distinguished Service Cross for that, which incidentally he did earn in Korea doing the same thing with a bayonet attack. There are other cases uh, where medics... Uh, expose themselves, and in the case of Rochenval, there was one, uh, I can't remember, I think it was a Private Wilson who had medical training, but he went over to administer aid to one of the soldiers, and he put his helmet uh, on that soldier, and in the process, he was killed. 
And there are many acts of that sort. And that, I think, is, it happens in, in all units. Uh, we're particularly proud of the, uh, the morale and the pride that we had in our unit because uh, we had been together, trained very long and hard for almost three years. And it was really a strong, a bonded unit that now was in this, this critical mass of uh, that bad weather, the, the enemy and the constant prodding by the uh, headquarters to move on. And as I mentioned uh, uh, earlier, our unit moved fast. And as a result, quite often we were out of contact with the units on our flank. And, uh, of course, we had, we had been dressed down in order to move through the snow without uh, uh, overshoes or overcoats. And, of course, we paid the price for that. But that was sort of, there was an alarm uh, and a spree of that unit that exists today uh, with our veterans that uh, it's hard to describe uh, to someone in just simple terms. It's a, a brotherhood within a brotherhood, and we like to think that there's a, a brotherhood within the airborne community. And within that, there are sub-elements, and the special forces have it, and we go and visit those units, you sense it right away. And you're right or wrong, they're going to defend their unit. And uh, we had a bad rep- a bad situation with the commander of the regiment that we were attached to. He had been our commander at Fort Bragg. Uh, whether it's right or not, it's just a, uh, a situation that developed. Many of our men still understood that. And uh, there was a feeling that we would, we would do our very best, and if necessary, we would outshine that regiment that we were attached to. And I think we did, although we paid a very heavy price for it. I received a letter from General Ridgeway back about 1985. I had written to him about uh, a recognition for the unit. And in his letter, he pointed out that there's no other uh, battalion more gallant than the than the 551 in the European uh, campaign. And uh, to me, that was a very uh, high state of recognition coming from the, if you will, the airborne leader of World War II, uh, General Gavin. And uh, today we take great pride uh, in that, that form of recognition. But there was always a sense of accomplishment uh, carried by every man that I remember in the 551 to do the job and to uh, you know, carry our colors and uh, not be considered second place to anyone. And as a separate uh, unit, you're used and abused because the organic elements of a either regiment or division, they're going to take care of their people first. And I think somewhere in the the uh, research that has been done, a senior officer has admitted that uh, perhaps the battalion was not given its its fair shake of uh, supplies, uh, particularly uh, the winter gear when it came in. And I like to say one other thing that that I mean you can check this to ver- to verify it, but there was a shortage of ammunition, and we had to uh, finally track down the correspondence uh, out at St. Louis. And the files out there contain the firing logs of the uh, 
uh, airborne uh, artillery battalion that was supporting the, the 504 regiment. And from those firing logs, we could see that there were only two fire missions that day in the vicinity of Russianval. And the first one that that came down around 9.30 after this carnage was all over was smoke, 110 rounds of smoke. It was to cover the uh, position so that we could withdraw, pull our dead and wounded off the field. About an hour later, there was another uh, uh, several rounds. I don't remember the exact number, maybe 30 or 40 that were fired over the town across the Somme River. That None of that artillery fire ever supported our battalion during the attack that day. And we've had people uh, tell us that we're crazy, that we got our fair share of artillery. Didn't happen. And uh, one of the reasons, and probably the main reason that the artillery ammunition was in shortage was the Longshoremen's Union in the United States was on strike and they could not get the vessels loaded. And even today, I have a, a, a feeling about unions. And I, you know, I know their place and everything, but I'll never forget that. Because we were told, well, that's all you get because we, are, we have to ration our, our artillery because it's short, and we can only fire on certain priority targets. I think that our battalion in its short life uh, was was it was a uh, all American. I know that's the 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 designation of the eighty second Airborne Division, but these were young uh, volunteers, draftees that came from all sections of the country, and uh, you know many of them made the supreme sacrifice. And uh, when the job needed to be done. Uh, regardless of how dangerous they they did their darndest to get it done i think that accounts for even on uh, such a short uh, a battle strength and under those severe conditions that the 551 pursued its objective and ended up uh, you know securing russian ball in the bridge that may or may not have ultimately contributed, not that the 551 influenced Hitler to order withdrawal, I don't mean that at all, but that action then showed Hitler that all of his troops had been pushed back west of the Somme, and it undoubtedly went into uh, his decision to start the withdrawal. And we take great pride in, you know, in having been a part of that. That was Colonel Douglas C. Dillard. To learn more about him and his experiences, check out his books, Operation Aviary and Tiger Hunters. The links are in the show notes. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rolhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words.
We often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well known, but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency? On the presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest elected office in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.